the voice of the Thames Valley. River in a world where radio stations are ten a penny. Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, lad. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to River Radio. This is Politically Correct with Wisdom da Costa. Tonight on the show, we'll be talking to Bracknell's MP to find out what he's been up to. And hearing about a climate change round, the all new and insanely large 147 seat Buckinghamshire, Buckinghamshire Council. Joining us will be James Sutherland MP, Councillor Ed Gemmell, and hopefully a statement from Buckinghamshire Council about the brewing environmental brouhaha. With music from the Fuji's Devo and Louis Armstrong. So, welcome to the show. So, we've got a little link in very later on in the show when we speak, well, I won't say which of the guests, but when we play the Fuji's, if you can spot the link between the Fuji's song and one of our guests, then I will give you a free jar of summer 2021 honey from Gander's Honey for collection only, of course. So, I want to welcome to the show Inish, James Sunderland. James, um, really pleased to have you on the show. You're calling us directly from the House of Commons, I believe. Indeed, I'm in the office. Um, you can't really see on the radio, but uh, over my right shoulder is Whitehall. Got a great view of the buses and the taxis going through. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, um, you're actually about to vote, I believe. Tell me more about the vote that you're um, in the midst of um, talking about and voting on. Well, there's lots of votes going through all of the time. Um, there are social care motions going through this today. Um, there's clearly lots of debates happening all of the time. So what I tend to do is to pay very close attention to what's happening in the chamber. If I can't physically be there, I'll have the TV on in the background. So at least when I do make my vote, I'm very well informed as to what the uh, issues are. And more importantly, what the amendments are, because, of course, every MP needs to understand what he or she is voting for. I mean, it must be fairly complicated because you have such a wide range of laws and proposals which are, people are looking to enact, and the, the way in which they touch every aspect of society can be quite mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. I mean, the variety is quite staggering. If you consider how many departments there are, if you consider how many promises were made at the last uh, election, um, how much legislation is going through, whether it's uh, big government departments pushing it, or whether it's 10-minute um, rule bills, or whether it's uh, more minor legislation, you'd be amazed at how often the law needs to be changed. And, of course, we are the lawmakers in Westminster, and that's our job. But um, to cut a very long story short, MPs tend to have more of an interest in some items of new law and less in others. And I tend to, like my colleagues, focus on what I'm interested in and what I can add value to. Yeah. And how do you sort of bring it in when you have a, a group of people, maybe a pressure group, maybe not a pressure group, and they want you to talk about an issue which you're not really familiar with? How do you deal with that? Well, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, you get your feeds from many sources. So first and foremost, um, my constituents write to me a lot and they ask me to go to certain things and attend certain debates. I'm very happy to oblige them if I can. Um, 
you're aware, of course, from what the whips tell you, what legislation is coming in. Uh, I read the newspapers. So, and I've got a team um, working for me who put together my schedule for the week and give me insights into what's happening. So the feeds are multifarious and uh, I hopefully get it right most of the time. So you mentioned your team and I'm really glad you did because being an MP is not an easy job. Who do you need in a team to make it work well for constituents? Well, all MPs have different sort of approaches, um, but my office, I think, is pretty good. Uh, it's structured about right. So I've got Katie Craven, first and foremost, who is my PA. Um, she is effectively my, my manager, my office manager in Westminster. And she used to work for Margaret Thatcher. Um, okay. So she's pretty experienced. And, and since then, John Major and Lord Coe. So I feel very blessed to have her. Um, I've also got Jerry Barber, who um, is my man in Bracknell. So he looks after me in the constituency, does an awful lot of very good work. Plus, I've got two brilliant caseworkers called John and Robert. So that's my team. It is full on. We are working and have worked around the clock. Um, the hours that we work as an office go way beyond the mandated 37 hours a week. We're working literally um, if we're awake dedicated team. I feel very blessed and uh, the tempo's pretty hot, so I need them. Yeah, I noticed that tonight the last item on the agenda is 10pm. Yeah, I mean, that's quite normal for Westminster. I mean, we in the past, we can be here voting till midnight and gone midnight. Um, but what you'll find, that there are three really intense days here, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. We tend to be on a three-line whip. What that means is that we have to physically be here on the estate ready to vote. Uh, and that's um, very much the whip's job. They they make sure that we are physically here, that we're voting, and that we know what we're voting for. Thursday can be a three-line whip, but often one-line whip, so a more enjoyable day in the sense that you've got time to think on a Thursday. Um, there are debates, of course, all day on Thursday as well. And then on a Friday, I tend to be in the constituency, and, and sometimes on a Saturday as well. So y- your time is pretty carved up. Um, from the moment I wake up in the morning, until the moment I go to sleep at night, I'm doing something, I'm on the phone, I'm talking to constituents, I'm writing to people, uh, I'm lobbying, pushing quite hard, influencing. So there is never a dull moment. That sounds like you have to be mentally pretty strong, or certainly look after your mental health as well. How do you deal with that? I mean, I'm quite lucky in the sense that I spent a long time in the army. Um, So uh, I think I'm pretty robust. I think that my mental health is pretty good. I, I've learned from experience what the signs are, what to look for. Like anything in life, if you are um, enjoying a balance, if you work hard and play hard, if the balance is there, you're fine. If you're sleeping well, if you're eating well, sorry, if you are, um, if if you are sleeping well and if you are eating well and you are relaxing and resting, spending time with your family. I think it's easy to get it right. And, and my fear is that some of my colleagues in all walks of life actually probably work too hard and therefore become degraded, they become tired, less effective. So balance is everything. Right. You mentioned your family. Tell us something more about your family. You're married with two boys? Yeah, I'm married with two boys. Um, Kelly's my long-suffering wife. Okay. Uh, we're the same age. We met many, many years ago, been together ever since. And uh, I'm very lucky uh, and that she's very supportive. We've got a strong, strong marriage. Um, and I've got two boys, um, Oliver and Samuel, uh, they, they're 10 and 12. They are typical boys. They're mischievous. Um, they are chaotic. They love sports. They're good fun. And, um, I'm very blessed to have them. So we, we do a lot as a family. Uh, we try and stay a unit. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I, f- I feel very lucky. Great. And do you think that's an important part of keeping you grounded? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think having somebody in your life who keeps you grounded is really important. I mean, Kelly's the first person to support me, but also the first person to be critical. Mm. I think she's the first person also to point out my faults and my deficiencies, uh, and that's what you need. I mean, you, you need that, um, that that rock in your life. And as I said, I've been with her for, for a number of years now, I mean, you know, over 20 years, so so we know each other pretty well. And, and don't forget, she's a former army wife as well, okay. and they're made of strong stuff. I mean, the, the army wives are pretty strong. Um, she's followed me around the world. She's packed boxes endlessly. I think we've been in about um, 15 houses in 22 years, something like that. So we, we, we are moving all of the time. In fact, in many ways, since becoming an MP, I think I've lived in the same house. Um, so the stability we've had in Westminster is amazing. But thankfully, you don't have to follow the same high cleaning standards as in the army when you're moving. No, I mean, <laughs> you would have heard about the old march out. I mean, oh, yes. you know, you're in Windsor, so you, you get the way it works. In the old days, it used to be quite brutal. You'd have the house march out team there inspecting the oven, inspecting the carpets and the floor, um, you know, inspecting the inside of light bulbs and, and basically making sure that you couldn't possibly leave an army house unless it was really, really clean. They then brought this scheme in, which was sort of a clean scheme, which is brilliant. It's all done for you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, look, times are changing, thank God, and uh, it's less draconian than it was. But, yeah, we are very familiar with uh, with, with travelling, very familiar with, with moving, and it's great now to be living you know, very close to Bracknell uh, and, um, and able to sort of go into the constituency and be there as often as I can. So I'm very, very lucky. And, of course, you mentioned um, sport and leisure, and you're actually vice-chair of the All-Parliamentary Football Club group. Do you play? <laughs> Yeah, I, I do play, but uh, I'm not very good. Um, unfortunately, as you get slightly older, things hurt a lot more, <laughs> and the recovery time is such. I used to play a little bit when I was younger. My, my, my two boys played football, so a very good standard, actually. Yeah. So I enjoyed watching them. But uh, I, I don't play so much now. Uh, that's more of a social. Okay. And, um, and I also play cricket. I'm a big boat sportsman. I, I fish. I play golf. So if I'm outdoors, I'm normally quite happy. Good. Excellent. So I've got to ask, this is the, one of the key questions. I'm going to put you on the spot here now. Who do you support? I'm an Aston Villa fan. Ah, OK. You're Brummy. Yeah, I was at university in Birmingham. And uh, as, as a 19-year-old, going to university for the first time, um, long before I joined the army, went up to Birmingham. My friend said to me, do you like football? I love football. Right, let's go watch the Villa. So we went to watch um, my first ever big Premier League matches at the Holt End and it was like a drug. Um, it was just brilliant and yeah. I'm afraid um, I had three years in Birmingham. My brother went to university after him for three years so I spent six years um, in Birmingham watching um, Aston Villa. Um, fans are very long-suffering. Very. Villa fans. <laughs> a bit like Newcastle fans. I think, I think that's what sets those two clubs apart. They're very long-suffering but uh, it's a great privilege and you know what? I love all football. I love non-league football. I'm a big Sutton fan, big Aldershot fan, Woking fan. I watch non-league football quite a lot. And uh, it, it's good to, uh, as I said, to have two boys that play now. Well done. You nailed those local clubs very well. I'm impressed. So it's been a whirlwind. whirlwind. So tell us what you've been up to since the election in late 2019. Well, it's... Um, it's been a very strange time. I mean, I'm used to adversity because I've seen a lot of it uh, on my travels. I've served in Iraq and done Afghanistan jobs and Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Sierra Leone. So I'm no stranger to adversity at all. Um, but uh, clearly the pandemic was 
was terrible, awful for all of us. And we forget that 130,000 people um, were, you know, were, were died in the UK. I mean, it's, it's just an obscene figure. Um, so we took it very seriously as a government, I think. I took it very seriously personally. We ran surgeries throughout. We were answering the phone, emails, uh, letters, seven days a week. And uh, to my complete shock, I worked out this week that we've done over 30,000, that's, that's, you know, three zero thousand individual bits of casework over the last 20 months, um, which is pretty high tempo. And much of that was COVID. So uh, as serious as it was, we did what we could to help people to uh, look after their universal credit applications, self-employed, a uh, lot of work with people, furlough, getting investment into the constituency, just really trying to keep things afloat and to offer that support in TLC. And uh, I took that very seriously. Uh, it was a very important part of the job for me. And, and, and hopefully, you know, Bracknell was in a better place because of it. But I'm not complacent for one second. People have suffered. People lost their jobs. Um, people are in poverty. So one of the things that I really try and do is to remain cognizant all of the time of those who are less fortunate than ourselves and to do what we can for them. So for me, politics is a way of doing that. It's, it's a way of offering empathy to people, a way of supporting people. And as a military man, I'm also very keen that, uh, that we serve others, and that's what it's all about. Politicians can be self-serving. Hopefully I'm not. For me, it's about giving something back after 27 years in the army. I had a great time. And hopefully, as the MP for Bracknell, um, you know, I'm doing what I can to support those that live there. Okay. And you mentioned 30,000 pieces of casework. That, that is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I struggle with 50 a year. Uh, so you obviously need your team there. So my question to you is, what would be some of your high points, the big successes in the casework? And let's be honest, sometimes you see some tragic stories which you're unable to help. So what would be your high points and your low points in the last two years? Well, again, I mean, I don't have any grand designs on, on changing the world because that's not possible. So it's small, it's small movements on the tiller. But in particular, it was helping people to get the funding they wanted and needed during the pandemic. It was helping people to apply for certain schemes. Um, it, it was meeting constituents and offering support the pandemic was going to end at some point. Um, we got some money for, for the, the deck, hopefully, in Bracknell, the new shopping centre, which we're looking forward to doing. Uh, we've had some success with legislation. That's the creation of the War Memorials Bill, which I introduced into the House. Uh, we've had lots of success in macro terms with getting the government to drop its ill-fated uh, Litchfield table, as in the prescriptive planning targets for house building in the south of England. I chaired the Armed Forces Bill Committee as well, which is brilliant, getting that bit of legislation through. So, so for me, the, it's been a combination of, of tactical successes locally in Bracknell, um, going to meetings, getting the British Legion branch hopefully up and running again, uh, but also achieving some successes in terms of government and macro politics. And that's really important that we, we try and straddle both requirements. Is it, what sort of failures have you seen? Failures. Well, you could call them failings or areas where you felt, you know what, I wish I could have helped, but I couldn't. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I'm being very candid now, but I, I think certainly the self-employed schemes weren't great at the beginning. So my heart did go out to those who were suffering, who were self-employed, who weren't getting support. Um, IR35, of course, that the, the tax changes there, that's been difficult because a lot of people living in Bracknell are self-employed and, and, and do need the support from HMRC. So I think I would have wanted to do more for them. Um, there's been lots and lots of lots of 
myths about free school meals. I mean, complete nonsense. I mean, the government is, is doing an awful lot with free school meals. It's being funded. Uh, we funded some fantastic um, holiday schemes, vouchers, so that children didn't go hungry. And, um, and I've been to visit the food bank as well. I mean, what a fantastic thing that is. I mean, nobody likes the idea of a food bank, and I wish we didn't have them. But, but they're there, and they're doing a great job. And, and, and I'm just really, really pleased that uh, we've got such brilliant people running that facility in Bracknell. And, um, and, and quite clearly, I want to do what I can to get people off universal credit, get people out of poverty, and to make sure that they get back into employment and that they can afford to feed their family. And that's very important for me. I'm fascinated. You mentioned universal credit a couple of times now. And, of course, the, um, the COVID uh, premium has dropped out. Where do you stand on that premium? Because I see many people who for whom it is a lifeline. For you and I, it's not a big deal. For them, it's food. It's a really tricky one. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, I'm quite transparent. I'm caught right now between rock and a hard place with this one. Um, but ultimately, I'm a loyal Conservative. And um, I tend to vote with the government. I was elected in 2019 on a Conservative manifesto. The country is £2.2 trillion in debt. So we've all got to take some responsibility, get that debt back down again. We've got to put money back into the Treasury. Um, and, and I suspect that, uh, that universal credit is not a good way of targeting that. But it was only ever a temporary measure. It was quite clear that the uplift would be temporary. And uh, what the Chancellor's doing is effectively putting it back to where it was beforehand. Now that the immediate uh, nightmare of the pandemic has passed, so if it comes to a vote, and it won't, I suspect I will reluctantly, I suspect, vote with the government because I don't like it any more than anybody else does, but uh, we've got to be pragmatic and uh, we've got to make sure that we are not writing checks that we can't cash and making sure that we help people in as many ways as we can. But uh, the uplift isn't necessarily a way of doing it and perhaps it shouldn't be permanent. Okay, thank you for answering that question and being candid. Now tell us about your role in the Commons Sense Group and what is it and what are its objectives? Can you repeat the question, please? I'm sorry. Yeah, the Common Sense Parliamentary Group. So tell us about the group and what your role is in that group. Well, I I think the Common Sense Group is a very good thing. It was formed at the beginning of this parliament by Sir John Hayes, who's a great friend of mine, a great stalwart of the party. And he is an amazing man. And like him, um, many MPs are concerned about the, the cultural shift to the left. So, for example... It's the way in which the BBC is deemed to be reporting. Uh, it's, it's left-leaning, it's woke. Um, we're not happy about um, the apologism that we're seeing for, um, you know, for years gone by, and it's a very difficult issue, I know. Um, I, I, I think that we need to make sure that um, we are respectful of others, that we don't go down you know, streets ripping up statues, um, I suspect also that uh, we have to make sure that we, we are dealing with illegal immigration. So it's deemed to be a right-wing group. I don't subscribe to all of its objectives, um, but, but I think what the Common Sense Group seeks is pragmatic policies which make sure that the government fulfills its promises, which make sure that we're not selling white working-class boys who are amongst the most disadvantaged in anywhere across society, that we're not doing that. And we're making sure that we are benefiting everyone in society. Um, so it's complex, and I, I suspect that there's work to do. So National Trust, for example, and the Churchill thing, 
you know, let's not apologise for who we are. Let's not apologise for what we've been. Let's extract the good from that. Let's also be mindful of where we didn't get it right in history. But what you can't do is whitewash history. What you can't do is ignore history, airbrush it out. We need an honest and frank dialogue about these things. But but erasing it from memory and erasing Churchill's name and, you know, putting up warning signs at National Trust Museums is not the way to do it. So you were sort of saying, if I can um, paraphrase, is that Churchill was a good guy, did some fantastic things, but he got some stuff wrong in light of today's uh, um, standards. I think that's fair. I mean, it's very difficult to look at somebody and say that they were good or bad, but Churchill was a great leader. Um, I think the UK can justifiably be proud of having Churchill as as the leader. He was a great wartime leader, a great prime minister. Um, He presided over victory against an awful Nazi regime uh, in 1945. So we owe him an awful lot. But of course, Churchill was reflective of the day. He was reflective of the era. Um, He was a product of the empire. And uh, and in many ways, what we need to be doing is looking back on that period of history um, and being judgmental, but but not necessarily airbrushing it from memory because that's who we are. That's our history. I'm very proud of our history. The British, um, you know, the the, the British have some very good things around the world. education, schools, the list goes on. Uh, we were a force for good. And, and I've travelled a lot and I've seen and I've seen the effects of that. And of course, that's now morphed into the Commonwealth, which is a very objective thing, very positive thing. So I think we have much to be proud of as a country. And uh, I suspect that airbrushing Churchill and others out of history is not the way to go. Okay, thank you. Now, I really would like to, but I'm not going to, ask you about the paragraph from the Common Sense Conservative Thinking for the Post-Liberal Age, the chapter five, which you co-authored with David Maddox, the conservative case for media reform. So what I'd like to do is just ask you, will you come back on the show on another occasion just to talk to us about the, the five proposals that you have there? I don't have time to do it now. You've got to go and vote in a moment. So that's an invitation back to you. No, I'd, I'd be delighted. Um, I mean, I, I think if I was given a specific remit for an interview, then what, of course, I would do is go back to the article, research it, and come up with some answers and explain why we wrote what we did. Um, But the BBC does have to reform. Uh, It it is quite clear that uh, the the BBC cannot be imposing this metropolitan, elite, you know, liberal view upon all of us. The country's a big place. It must be reflective of those right across the UK. And, and, And I'm quite clear that we should not be putting up the licence fee unless the BBC addresses some of these concerns. Um, so, so I'm very happy to talk about it. And, uh, and let's, yeah, let's go for it. Excellent. Look forward to having you back on the show, James. So let's look at Bracknell today. What are the issues that Bracknell is facing and how are you going to tackle them? Well, again, as a politician, as one of me and 92,000 constituents, so I haven't got a magic wand. I say to people who write to me, um, I always reply. That's very important. And I'm always very honest with people. If we can help them, we do. If we can't, we say why we can't. But Bracknell is a very pragmatic place. It's very blue-collar. I'm very proud to be serving Bracknell. The people are great. Um, I just think that they are hardworking, decent, law-abiding, you know, family people in the main. Very pragmatic. Um, The skills are great in Bracknell. Most people are working. Full employment's pretty good in comparison. We're very lucky. I think Bracknell's got a good offer. We've got good roads. We've got a great new shopping centre. Uh, we've got loads and loads of things going for us. But, of course, there is some poverty there. Um, we do need to improve 
certainly that's what we do. Bratland is a facelift. Um, so I'm very happy to be supporting the new part of the shopping centre called the deck. Our skills need a bit more funding. We've got work to do with the SEN provision, unquestionably. Um, and, and also I'm very keen that we do build houses, but in the right places. We can't keep building on our open spaces, what's left of them. It's an urban constituency, it's, uh, it's a conurbation, and we've got to protect the fantastic quality of life that we've got. So it's not plain sailing. But of course, the Bracknell Forest Council has also spent lots of money for the pandemic. Uh, we need to make sure we balance the books. We've got to make sure that we, you know, we get a bit more um, in terms of our car parks and, and get a bit more back into the coffins. Okay. Uh, and Bracknell Forest Council has always balanced its books. It's a very well-run council. Um, so it's not plain sailing. There's a good thing going there, and I'm very pleased to be in Bracknell. Uh, and I'm very happy looking people in the eye and saying, what we've got there is great. But there's always more we can do. And, and, and certainly looking after our poorest families is, for me, right up there. So you've mentioned the poorest families a few times. Clearly, you're something you're very sensitive to. What are you proposing or what have you got on the cards that you can do within Parliament to try and improve, I would say, the lot or the situation or the experiences of some of these poor pe- poorer people, I should say? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to make sure that we've got a good system of, of, of uh, allowances. And, um, you know, people who need housing support, they need to get that. People who need income support need to get that. Universal credit is working. Uh, yes, I'm in two minds about the the, uh, the £20 uplift, as we said earlier. Uh, so I'm pretty clear that we must provide the best possible safety net for those in Bracken. Um, but it's also about education. It's about making sure that uh, that our pupil premium pupils are looked after. It's about making sure they've got decent food at school. It's making sure that we get employment. Um, you know, spend and tax and spend and save and spend and tax is not the way to do this. You can't just tax the rich and give to the poor. We've got to create wealth at the same time. And what I really want is for everybody in society to be doing their bit to create wealth and for that wealth to be shared. Um, so it's about the best possible jobs, it's about putting up salaries. It's about increasing the minimum wage. It's about making sure that Bracknell's attractive to overseas investment, making sure that we open more offices in Bracknell and, and more companies and more businesses that more people are in work uh, and you know i will not rest in bracknell unless bracknell has a 100 percent employment rate so we need to we need to kill it unemployment we need to make sure that we give people uh, the right places to live through uh, through, through the best possible support low-income ha- housing um, housing support schemes get on the ladder so i think we're doing it but I think we can focus more on what needs to be done too. You've mentioned a lot of things there, each of which is a big issue in their own right. Which is the one thing you want to work on in the next two years? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear it's employment, actually. Okay. Employment for me is it, because if you've got the minimum wage across the UK and you've got people in employment, if you've got two incomes per family, one income per family, um, then, then people would tend to be in a much better place than if they were unemployed. So absolutely, it's about making Brexit work. It's about global Britain. It's about making sure that we, we are attractive to overseas investment, that we're attractive to businesses. Um, it's about development. It's about investment. It's about creating wealth. Uh, and, and I happen to think that uh, if people are employed in Bracknell, if they're earning good money, if they are um, saving for the future, if they're saving for their pensions, if, if they're able to afford clothing and food for their children, which is really, really important, 
and we give our children the best opportunities and best schools, uh, I, I'm pretty certain that we'll break the cycle and that Bratton will be an even better place to live. So, so are you saying in terms of jobs that we're really looking at two aspects? One is marketing UK PLC more externally and also attracting investment. How are you going to attract investment into the UK in Bracknell? How will the Conservative Party do that? Well, I mean, this, this, is, this is the difficult one. Um, I, I think we have a role now to sell Britain across the world. So look at the benefits of where we are. We speak English. Greenwich Mean Time, we're on the Meridian. We've got a good climate. We've got good airports. We've got good roads. We've got a very highly skilled workforce. We've got fantastic people. We've got diversity. I mean, look at look at the diversity in our country. We've got the most amazing diasporas all over the world emanating from the UK. So we are a trading nation. So the deals that Liz Trust is putting together at the moment, uh, post-Brexit, uh, really important. We've got to make sure that we, we, we advertise who we are, what we can bring. So it's about companies coming into Bracknell, it's about investment, it's about the government supporting schemes, it's about startups, uh, it's about making sure that the Thames Valley is the Silicon Valley of the southeast, okay. and therefore creating the wealth that we need to, need to live. Thank you very much, James. James, how can people get in touch with you? Well, I'm an MP, so uh, I'm on Google. If you Google me, my address is there, uh, james.sunderland.mp at parliament.uk. Um, my office will always field inquiries, uh, and, and if I need to call somebody back, I will. But I want to be accessible. Uh, I am local. I'm very proud of where I come from, and um, I'm there for Bracknell. So uh, please do get in touch if you need anything. Thank you, James Sutherland. Sunderland, sorry, sir. Uh, thank you, James <laughs> Sunderland. I can't even edit that out anymore. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you again and more regularly over the years and also to talking about your, um, your chapter in the Common Sense book. So thank you, sir. So coming up next, we've got in our environmental and political brouhaha is brewing in the all-new Buckinghamshire Council. You don't want to miss that. But first... The Fuji's killing me softly with this word. And competition time. The first to email me the answer before the end of the song. There's a connection between the Fuji's song and one of our guests. We'll get a free jar of summer honey from Gander's Honey Windsor. Please email your answers to studio at river.radio. Thank you. My pain with his fingers Singing my life with his words Killing Softly with his song, killing me softly with his song, telling my whole life with his words, killing me softly with his song. This is why Clef Refuge can rise well. Little bass sitting up here on the bass. While I'm on this road, I got my girl L. One time, one time. Hey, yo, L, you know you got the lyrics. I heard he sang a good song. I heard he had a style. And so I came to see him and listen for a while. And there he was, this young boy, stranger to my heart, strumming my pain with 
embarrassed by the crown I felt he found my letters And read each one out loud I prayed that he would finish But he just kept right on Strumming my pain with his fingers Point kid, and they'll rat on you. The family niggas will rat on you. That's why we gotta be prepared to take whoever out we need to. There we go. That was the Fuji's with Killing Me Softly with his song. Did you get the connection? Well, I'm going to tell you because nobody got it. It was that the song was written by James Sunderland, which, of course, is the same name as uh, the MP for Bracknell, who we spoke to just a few minutes ago. So that's what we've been doing on River Radio, Politically Correct. It is um, it's Monday now, it's all day. And you can listen to us on internet at www.river.radio or on Google, Android, or even you can listen to us again if you go to the website and you can download the podcast from Deezer, Spotify, Apple and Google. Who would have thought, eh? So next on, we've got... Silence. <laughs> Ed Gemmell, welcome to the studio. So, hi, nice to see you, Wisdom. So, Ed, you're councillor for Hazelmere, is that right? I am, that's right. And when were you elected? So, in the recent unitary elections in May. Right, and in the 
in the May, this is an all-new council with an enormous number of councillors, 147 councillors. It does seem like a large number of councillors, and they're looking at what the number should be for the next council. Although I have to say, having got in as a councillor and with all the work we're doing, I can't imagine doing all the casework and everything else and having less than three councillors in a ward. And that sounds like a challenge, even at that test stage. Uh, yeah, it is a challenge. I mean, there's no question. Obviously, mm. in some wards, there's there's more work than in others. And in some wards, the councillors are better at coordinating it, I guess, between them. But there's a vast amount of work um, already in Hazelmere and with all the climate work. OK. Now, you recently issued a press release, I believe, with the Impact Alliance. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I mean, the Impact Alliance being the relatively loose grouping of independent councillors um, who joined together in order to, I mean, support each other generally and also to make sure that they got onto the um, critically important committees um, around Buckinghamshire Council. And you're very unusual in the sense that you've specifically come in on one single ticket, is that right? That's absolutely right. I mean, as far as I know, I'm the only, I'm the only politician in the country that has ever been elected on one particular policy of climate action now. And if you can imagine that five or ten years ago, that probably wouldn't have been possible. Absolutely. So what is this brouhaha that's brewing, brewing in Buckinghamshire Council? Well, I mean, the, the particular issue is, is that um, for the last full council meeting on Wednesday, um, I had put through a motion supported by Greg Smith of the Green Party um, that climate risk should be um, put onto all of the risk registers of the council, um, all of the departments and of everybody that the council has influence over. And what was the outcome? Uh, well, we never got to put the motion. In fact, just before it was put, um, two members of the Conservative Party of the Conservative Party put a procedural motion, um, kicking it sideways to be um, considered by the audit committee. So we never even had the debate on the issue. Okay. Now we did invite Council Leader Martin Tett, who leads the Conservative group, onto the show to discuss this with you residents, but he declined. He also hasn't actually issued a statement to address the issues of climate change and the concerns that Councillor Gemmell and many others have actually raised. Ed, how many people are supporting this motion? How many councillors? Um, well, in terms of, I mean, when we came to um, organising it, I mean, all of those in the in the independent grouping, the Impact Alliance would have supported it. Um, and I expect if it had come to a vote, so would the Liberal Democrats, Wickham Independence grouping. Um, when you actually were at the full council meeting, if you had been listening to the questions that were coming from a number of the Conservative um, councillors um, for Peter Strachan, that's the council member for um, climate and the environment, there were a lot of concerned voices being raised about climate. Um, I suspect if there'd been a free vote, in other words, if the Conservatives hadn't been forcing their councillors to vote in a particular way, um, then you might have actually found quite a few Conservative councillors choosing to support this motion. Unfortunately, it's very difficult when you look back over history to see any free votes that have truly happened at Buckinghamshire. And almost all the Conservative councillors all just tend to follow the party line. OK, let me read your motion out. So in recognition of the risks associated with, I presume, climate change specifically, the council proposes that all risks, all risk registers for the council, all departments within the council and in all associated bodies over which the council's influence should be updated to include climate risk or risk from climate change. Why were you proposing this specific motion? What are risk registers got to do with the way the council does its business? 
Essentially, a bit like with a corporation, when you're starting, the starting point for any large corporation or for a council or other large body is um, you're looking at the risks associated with what you're doing. And that goes down in your corporate um, register. And these are things that you have to address on a regular basis, be it annually, monthly, whatever is decided on them. Um, within the Buckinghamshire Council, um, what there is a, a sort of a, um, a red, amber, green kind of um, consideration on, on risks, um, meaning that some are only considered on an annual basis and some are considered enormous risks that have to be um, looked at regularly. But the point being is on climate, um, we are so far off in Buckinghamshire in taking the action needed to um, to defend the future of our children, um, to look after the elderly in terms of heat waves, and to prepare ourselves and adapt ourselves to the, to the monstrosity of climate change that's coming, is we need to get focus. And one of the ways to get focus is to get climate risk onto every single one of those risk registers so that it's consistently being considered. Um, we've got a climate change strategy at the moment which hasn't even been adopted so we've been sitting on it now for almost nine months Um, nothing's actually been done to get it adopted and we are now promised um, from a question um, by me at the full council meeting the the cabinet member for climate change has said that it will get adopted now by the end of the year Um, but we need to not only get that adopted but we need to get the true focus a cultural change so that every single issue we address in the council considers the environmental impacts and how it can benefit us in reaching net zero carbon emissions. Okay. Now, you mentioned there's an unadopted strategy. Is the strategy any good, though? On the very positive side, and I do compliment those who are writing the strategy, there are 60 points in it. So actually, it's relatively comprehensive in terms of subject matter. Um, So a lot of things are included. Um, There's been some decent work done by the council officers in trying to put it together. Um, So that's all positive. And when you come down to the the major negative on it is we don't have any proper targets, any matrix by which to identify if we're moving forward and achieving things. Um, There's no timescales beyond the timescale of following the government on a 2050 net zero target for Buckinghamshire County um, and beyond the suggestion that the the council will reach reach one or two um, carbon emissions targets which have been put in there's nothing else and what we need to see is not just adoption but we need to see some timings on all of these issues so we know for instance how many EV charging points when based over an annual thing going for a decade or two decades ahead Um, we need to see um, where the trees are being planted on an annual basis going up for the decades ahead we need to see policies that are going to protect the trees and how we're going to do it and everything just needs to be measurable. At the moment, there's nothing measurable. So you're saying you've got some blurb, which seems very nice, but there's no clear objectives and no metrics by which you can measure whether you're achieving those objectives. Absolutely. And I mean, and that's very important from a resident's point of view, from an opposition councillor's point of view. But it's even important if you're working in the council, how as a, you know, as an employee or an officer of the council, can you really work out if you're doing the right thing if you don't have all the targets to try to reach? So it's rubbish, really. I would like to not go so far as to say rubbish because it has got the content. There's content in there and there's some good stuff in there and I'm not putting down what the officers have tried to produce. But without targets, we're never going to reach anything. You know, you can't reach for the sky if you don't have a target to get there. So it's clear that we need objectives in that plan and some clear targets and some clear measurables. Otherwise, you can't check what you're achieving. So what about the risk register? How does that relate to the climate and strategy? Well, uh, the risk register, I mean, obviously there is climate risk, but what does that mean? And that's going to be different depending on which department of the council you're in and what issues you're, you're dealing with. Uh, I mean, let's just to take 
you know, a couple of examples. If you're looking at children's services, so we have children's services here looking after um, children who are unaccompanied coming in as refugees, looking after children once they're based in the in the uh, in the council area, protecting them, being a corporate parent for them. Um, and one of the issues, and it's been raised now with the children's services, I've raised it and said, do we have uh, have we looked at climate risk? Because we know that the the number of imp- of climate change um, refugees currently, or climate change migration currently, is at about the, the point of 30 million. But by the end of 2050, that's going to have gone up to between 200 million and 1.2 billion, based on estimates from um, very established bodies such as the World Bank. Are we ready for that kind of immigration coming into the UK, the number of children that would then be coming into the county, and can we deal with it? And each time we've asked the question, it's simply been said that we're following the, um, the normal guidelines and that any children coming in would be dealt with in the normal way. Well, that obviously means the answer is no, we've not considered it. So we get it onto the risk register for children's services, and that means that on an annual or a quarterly basis, we'll be saying, right, are we ready for what's coming from climate risk? How big is the climate risk? What's going to come? There was another example with fire services, so the Bucks and Milton Keynes fire services, over which the council has influence and and many of the councillors sit on it. And um, it was tried to be introduced by a couple of um, councillors at their last meeting that they should include climate risk onto the risk register of the fire service. Now, that would seem to be pretty obvious for any normal person that a fire service should have climate change risk on its register, particularly when you look at the Canadian heat waves and the fires all around the world and the increasing temperatures. Um, But there was one councillor who actually said in the debate that he thought that cyber attack was a bigger risk for the fire service um, than climate change. And if we go and get a Canadian heat wave, a one in a thousand year heat wave that's now, scientists have said, is 150 times more likely, that's every 6.5 years occurring in Buckinghamshire, it will sink our fire services without a trace. And we need to be prepared for that and how we would ramp up the fire service and support it, whether it's with army personnel or anybody else, in order to get through such a a catastrophe. Now, I take your point to all of these, and I suppose this boils down to emergency planning as opposed to being able to provide the money for it, because clearly most councils don't. So are you saying we should be including these risks into our emergency plan, emergency response plans? Uh, Definitely into the emergency response plans, but you're hitting another nail on the head when you're mentioning finance. I mean, there's no way you can prepare for it if you're not starting to look at what the financial consequences are. Mm. And whether that is saying that when we get a, a Canadian heat wave here, that we're going to need to borrow money to deal with it. And what? how are we going to borrow that money? How are we going to get it into the coffers in order to deal with the, you know, ramp up the services in the way we need it? And in fact, we don't have any financial plans on how we're going to reach 2050 net zero. I mean, we've heard um, from Martin Tett and from other Conservatives that it's fully costed. But on each request, we've gone in to say, where are the full costings? Give us all the background data. Um, let us see what's been done. There isn't anything. And particularly, the, uh, the Bucks Council has suggested that they might try to get to 2030 net zero for the council. Right. Well, you must have a financial costing then showing how you might get there. If not, how could you possibly decide? But we haven't got any of it. OK, we're going to take a quick break there. We're going to play Devo. Sorry, the name of the group is Devo, and the name of the song is? Is uh, Beautiful World. Excellent.
beautiful world we live in A sweet romantic place Beautiful people everywhere The way they show they care Makes me want to say It's a beautiful world It's a beautiful world It's a beautiful world That's Beautiful World by Devo. This is Politically Correct. You're on Monday, the 20th of September. I probably shouldn't have done that for all you guys listening on podcasts. It's not Monday, the 20th of September. It's whatever day it is. So you've been listening to Wisdom de Costa. We had um, Councillor Ed Gemmell just a few minutes ago. And before him, we had the uh, we had actually the MP for Bracknell, James Sunderland. We're looking forward to having James back on this on the show again in the future to talk about some of his interesting views, which people would really need to hear about that. So back to today, back to Ed, and we were talking about Buckinghamshire's climate strategy and that it isn't quite in in the right place and it certainly hasn't been implemented. Concerningly, though, you had a motion which you validly put together and presented to council, but that was kicked aside through a procedural motion. Is that, does that concern you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it concerns me very much. I mean, I think if we, I always like to look on the positive side, starting on the positive side, it doesn't mean it's disappeared completely. Being kicked aside to an audit committee or to the audit committee means it will at least be discussed again. So it's not it's not sunk without trace. Um, and it would have been obviously pretty dangerous politically, I imagine, for many of the Conservative councillors to actually vote against climate risk being put on the risk registers of the council and the departments. The very worrying thing about it is that it it smacks of, um, you know, the, the typical party whip idea that everybody has to vote um, along the party lines. And, and that's against the sort of democratic feeling that a, a councillor should turn up to every meeting with, um, you know, with an open um, view of everything in order to be persuaded by the arguments that are put forward and then have the opportunity um, to express their views and then to vote in the correct way. It also would seem to be rather... Em- undemocratic when you've got a constitution in Buckinghamshire which requires all of the councillors to represent um, all of the residents of their area including those that didn't vote for them and on the basis that the majority of people don't vote in local authority elections actually the largest group you're representing is those who didn't vote at all and in many cases when um, people are being elected in fact they're being elected on a a minority of the vote even of those who voted so Mm. really you've got to keep an open mind and you've got to do the absolute best and when it comes to anything on climate change upping our game, recognising the risk and doing what we can must be in the best interests of the children, the old people and all of the residents that are in our areas. Let's cut a long story short. Do residents care about climate change? Do they care about your motion? Um, well, when we put in the motion and and, um, and it was made public, I was personally copied on 15 or 20 emails from residents um, emailing all of the councillors in their area. So that would be the three in their area in general terms. And those are the only ones I saw. I mean, I, there may be others that I wasn't copied on, of course, and that's the thing I have heard verbally from a few other people. So, so it does resonate. Um, when I was on the um, doorstep in the council elections, and I probably 
visited about a thousand doorsteps. Um, obviously, climate change came up as an issue all the time. Um, and people were regularly saying that they're extremely worried about it. They're regularly saying they're extremely worried about it and regularly saying that they would like some leadership and some direction on it. Um, and that's borne out by the Ipsos Mori poll, so effectively the official government polling, um, which showed that 82% of people in most age groups were particularly worried about climate change and that that worry had stayed consistent during the last two years throughout the COVID pandemic. And you would have thought that with COVID taking away people's bandwidth, actually, that it would have gone down, but it hasn't. Uh, the UN carried out a similar poll across 1.5 million people across the, the world. Um, and in that poll, I can't remember the figure now, whether it was 85% maybe, but both Italy and the UK came out top with the numbers of people worried about climate change. So this is the thing that's on, on the voters' minds. Um, it's the thing that's going to be on their minds as we come to next elections. And it's what they want their councillors to sort out for them. They want leadership on climate action. So what you're saying is that Buckinghamshire is not showing leadership on climate action. They're letting down the 80% of people who really care about it in their area. I mean, that's definitely true in terms of the council as a political animal. And again, I come back to we have some very good officers who would like to be, I'm sure, doing more if they their hands were untied. Um, and I do. And you can't take it away from all of the councillors that are clearly good councillors and all, all the way through who would like to be doing the right thing. Um, from a democratic point of view, I'd like Martin Tett to get out the way and allow the councillors to actually vote the way they really feel is the right way. I simply do not believe that all of the Conservative councillors councillors do not want more ambitious and um, rapid climate action. I'm sure they're being told it by their residents all the time. Is this something that you and the Green Party and other people who are very understanding of climate change would actually go in and say, well, we're going to come in and sit alongside you and help you? I've already offered it. I'm absolutely sure that the Green Party member would offer it as well. Mm. Um, and probably the Green Party itself nationally, not that I have really any any insight into what they're doing. Um, but yes, I, I've, I've met with a cabinet member of climate change. I've offered my help. Um, and although being um, friendly towards my advances, let's say um, the um, climate change cabinet member has suggested that I go ahead in my day job and um, convert the British government to lead at a national level rather than worrying about what I'm doing on a county level. So a talk to the hand sort of approach. Absolutely. Get, okay. get, go and talk to somebody else. Don't talk to me. And if they force me to do it, I'll do it. Okay. Ed, you've got just over a minute now to tell us how people can contact you and also perhaps touch on your role at COP26 this year. Yep, very, very sure. That's fine. Um, well, you can contact me. Obviously, my email is available online on the Bucks Council website, but you can also use ed at gemmel.info and gemmel is G-E-M-M-E-L-L. Um, yes, I'm leading a delegation at um, COP26 for Scientists Warning Europe. Um, you can find out more about what we're doing if you go to planetincrisis.com. Um, we're going to be bringing out a record-breaking um, scientist paper, hopefully signed by more scientists in the world than any other paper ever, and a film by Jonathan Clay, the director of the last David Attenborough, Johan Rockstrom film on Netflix. And our aim is to have every single official and leader at COP26 looking at our film at the COP, which will be telling them what the world scientists in their tens of thousands are telling them they need to do to keep us safe. OK, that sounds... How did you get involved with COP26? Um, 20 seconds. Yeah, OK. I, I, I was having, having sat outside the Houses of Parliament um, a period ago, um, reading out the names of 20,000 scientists who signed one of the warnings. I was invited to join at what was a voluntary group, and I've now ended up as the managing director of a national charity, um, forming it and driving it forward. So climate change is a big issue for you? It's the only issue, and if we don't get it right, there isn't anything else. OK. We're going to end now with Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world. 
see trees of green Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night And I think to myself What a wonderful world The colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky Are also on the faces Of people going by I see friends shaking hands Saying how do you do They're really saying I love you I hear babies cry I watch them much more than I ever knew, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world, yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful I thought I'd give you the whole kit and caboodle on that song. So we come to the end of the show. Thank pay. you to my guest, James Sutherland MP, Sunderland MP for Bracknell Council, Ed Gemmell, Council for Hazelme in the all-new Buckinghamshire Council. And thank you to you for thank, listening. Thanks very much, Wisdom. Nice to be here. It's been great to have you on the show. Let, listen again to our show using Listen Again function at www.river.radio or download our podcast from Apple, Spotify, Google or Deezer. Next week, we've got MP John Redwood for Wokingham and a 15-year-old youth councillor, Alex Wood, and local democracy reporter, James Bagley. So join us next week for an hour of entertainment, information and empowerment. And